The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are in our third and final week of this holiday series or this Holy Day teaching series called Come, Let Us Adore Him. Now through this series we have been examining different characters in the birth narrative of Jesus and, and, and considering their reactions to the announcement of the will of God being done in their lives. Now in week one, we, we, we looked at Zechariah. He's the father of John the Baptist. And we saw his reluctance to submit to God. We, we discovered that submission to God is, is not always easy. It's not always painless. It's not always something we look forward to and joyfully want to engage with. As a matter of fact, the entire idea of submission is that the will of God is contrary to our natural desires. And the reason we have to submit ourselves is because we do not naturally desire to do what he wants for us to do. And in Zechariah, we saw his reluctance to take God at his word. And what we discovered, though, is that reluctant surrender is still surrender. That, that reluctant submission is still submission. It's not easy. There, there's a part of our flesh that wrestles, but just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find ourselves coming to this place of not my will being done, but our Father's will being done and saying, Lord, I surrender this to you. I want your will over mine. So we talked about reluctant submission. And then in week two, on, on Christmas, we saw Mary join, uh, or enjoying and having joy in submitting to the will of God. And, and in contrast to Zechariah, who was reluctant towards the will of God, Mary has, she has questions, no doubt, about the mechanics of how it is that a virgin could possibly bear a child, even though she's not been with a man. But, but, but she's not resisting. She, in fact, she responds to the angel in Luke one thirty-eight by saying these words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We see this joyful submission to God. And now in this third week, we're going to look at an exchange between two of these elderly saints recorded in the scriptures for us. These, these elderly saints who in, encounter Jesus and, and respond to seeing Jesus and seeing God's will being done. Now, the two characters in our text today are Simeon and Anna. Now, these lovely saints serve as faithful examples that demonstrate, like so many other characters in the scriptures, so many other personalities in the scriptures, that sometimes it is in the fourth quarter of life that God displays it is the most important season of life. That that fourth quarter is the one that, that really allows you an opportunity to take all of the wisdom that you've gained and, and to bring it to bear in a moment and to be used greatly of God. And that's exactly what we see in these saints. These are saints we can learn from. Saints who expect that what God said, he will do. They expect God to make good on his word. They expect God to speak. They believe good things about the character of God. They live anticipating the will of God and rejoicing in it. They are looking for God to accomplish his will. Not just reluctantly submitting to it, not just joyfully encountering it, but they're anticipating it, looking to those opportunities. When will God do what he said he would do? Anticipating the will of God. Now, anticipation is a, a sort of double-edged sword at times. You see, there's a, there's a toxic or a negative version of it that is always expecting the bad. It lives with this constant expectation or anticipation that things are going to go in the toilet at any minute. It's sort of Murphy's Law, if you will. 
And, and, and this version is prone towards anxiety and fear. Matter of fact, someone said this. I really like this quote. There are people who are always anticipating trouble, and in this way they manage to enjoy many sorrows that never really happen to them. Isn't that great? When, when you live with that perspective, you, you're constantly trying to outthink life and go, okay, how could this all turn terrible? And so you play it out in your mind and you, you, you endure the sorrow before it's ever happened. Now, if it doesn't happen, you go, well, I'm pleasantly surprised that it didn't happen, but it could still go wrong. So there's that negative form of anticipation. Now, on the flip side of that to the other polar opposite, the other extreme is this sort of toxic positivity. And this person only anticipates the good things and struggles to deal with the reality of the painful and difficult things. Struggles to feel empathy, to confront pain, to deal with sin, or to see the bad and the evil in life. And in this person's perspective, sorrow must be spiritualized rather than grieved. Confession and brokenness, those things are a, are, are a last resort rather than willingly walked into and invited into their lives. But the, between those two extremes, there is this sort of middle space. This, this middle space between the two extremes where a person anticipates God to be working in the midst of the pain and the sorrow of life. A, a, a person anticipates the goodness the redemption of God in the brokenness of the world. They've not succumbed to, to sort of hopeless negativity, and, and, and they don't ignore the negative and painful things in life, and thereby cut themselves off from seeing the, the evil and the bad in the world. But rather, they see the world for what it is, and they take God at his word, anticipating that he is working redemptively in the world. Matter of fact, I, I really like the story that I heard about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, the, the founder of the uh, China Inland Mission, he used to hang in his home a plaque with two Hebrew words on it, Ebenezer and Jehovah Jireh. Now the first word means, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Hitherto, up until this point, God has helped us, right? And then the other one means the Lord will see to it or the Lord will provide. One sign in his house looked backwards and the other sign looked forwards. I just love that. God has always been faithful. The Lord will provide. It was the message he hung in his house. See, here is the important but hard reality for us all. You have to be able to have your feet firmly planted in both realities that seem incompatible. You have to see the bad in the world and still anticipate the redemptive work of God. Still look forward to God working in the midst of the brokenness. Because here's the deal, and this is where this becomes essential for us. You will not come to God with things that you don't trust him to do anything about. If you don't believe that God will actually work, that he's personal, that he hears your prayers, that he cares, that he responds, you will never bring to him the things that are broken in the world. And you will never seek his redemption. See, that's why we have to live in the in-between in the tension, in the already, but not yet, as those who have a hope that is secure, that does not leave us ashamed because we believe that God is working redemption in the world. I mean, we see this sort of play out in the life of Jesus, don't we? In, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes to his own hometown, to the, the town of Nazareth. 
Let me read to you what it says there. It says, he, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is, is this is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a, a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So here, Mark, Mark 6, get this. Jesus comes to his own hometown. And he's limited in what kind of ministry he can do there. He's limited. Not because he wasn't willing. Matter of fact... We, we see in the text evidence that he was willing because he marveled at their unbelief. It's like, I, I wanted to do something. I'm so surprised by this. I wanted to work. And it's not because he didn't have power because some sick people did get healed. He did have power. Right? We're left with only one conclusion. Because the people in his own hometown didn't believe that the kid that they watched grow up in their small town was anything special, they didn't go to him for anything. He's just Jesus. He's little, little Yeshua that plays down the street, and he grew up with my kids. What's, what's he got for me? Nothing. So they don't go to him. They don't seek him out. They don't ask for anything. They shrugged him off and never even asked. Maybe, maybe that's why the half-brother of Jesus would write in his epistle, the epistle of James, when he would say in chapter 4, verse 2, in the second half, he would say, you do not have because you do not ask. And it is here that the author of Hebrews is so very helpful to us. When he defines faith in Hebrews eleven six in this way, he says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. So, so faith, as defined by the author of Hebrews, works like this. It's not just believing anything that you want, as oftentimes the word faith is thrown around in the present culture, but it works like this. God is. He exists. And he is who he says he is. And he rewards those who seek him. He's good. He's personal. He's paying attention. If you're like, God, I want your will. I want you to do what you want to do in this world. God rewards that. He meets you in that. He's good. He's personal. And he loves to meet those who seek him. So here's, here's the bottom line. An essential ingredient for, li for a life of faith can be summed up in one word. Anticipation anticipation that God exists and will make himself known. An anticipation that God wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. An anticipation that a good and personal God loves to reward those that seek him. And so today, as we look at our text, we're going to work our way through the text. We'll circle back around and make a few notes along the way. But what we're going to see is two elderly saints who had a long life with God. And at the end of the, their lives, in that fourth quarter, they go, man, I'm expecting God to work. I'm expecting him to move. I'm expecting him to redeem. So here's our outline for today. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40, anticipating the will of God. That's the title for today. 
In verses 22 to 24, we see the obedience of Joseph and Mary. In verses uh, 25 to 35, the anticipation of Simeon. In verses 36 to 38, the proclamation of Anna. Let's begin by looking at that first section, verses 22 to 24, where we read this. After the birth of Jesus, his parents come to the temple in Jerusalem, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here we see the obedience of Joseph and Mary. They uh, obeyed the law of God. They dedicated their son, Jesus, to God. And they honored God with what they had by bringing an offering of two turtle doves or two young birds for the redemption of their son. So they obeyed the law of God first. These two people, the, the mother of Jesus, the Savior, and the, the stepfather or adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph, were devout in their desire to follow God. They kept the laws about purification after uh, a child is born. They, this is now the eighth day, so no doubt Jesus is being circumcised and introduced as a covenant member of the community of Israel. And they are offering the ransom price for the firstborn son as required by the law in uh, Leviticus chapter 12. So they, they, they obey the law. They have a high reverence for the law of God. They say, hey, we are surrendered, submitted to God and what he says. His word says this, therefore, that is what we submit and surrender our lives to. And they, they dedicated their son to God. Now, this is really a twofold dedication. This is one, committing the life of Jesus to God by bringing him to the temple because every firstborn male was to be dedicated unto the Lord. That was in the Old Testament. And so by bringing Jesus, they, they're, they're, they're saying, Father, God, Jesus belongs to you. Okay? And then, in addition to that, they are committing their own efforts to raise him in the Lord. By, by paying the redemption price and offering these two turtle doves, one of the things that was happening was like, God is saying, every firstborn male child belongs to me, is mine. Then, by the price of the offering, you would redeem them back unto yourself and receive them back into your home to care for what is God's. That's the idea. So by bringing him home, they're saying, may we raise him as your child, as the one who belongs to you. It's an incredible picture. So they dedicated their son to God, and they honored God with what they had. They, they gave the offering of the poor. They were required to purchase their Firstborn son with a blood sacrifice, the law commanded a young bull or a lamb for parents who could afford such a thing. But the poor were allowed to bring two young birds. So this tells us about their status in life. They were, they were bringing the, the, the offering of poverty. They honored God with what they had. Now, they, they gave the offering of the poor, but that's not all that they gave. It may be easy to look at them and say, you know, they... They, they kind of skimped a little. I mean, here he is, the son of God. They should have brought a lamb or figured out how to bring a lamb, right? But that's not what happens. They brought what they could. And, and, and in addition to that, though Joseph and Mary were poor, they gave the whole of their lives to God. Joseph obediently surrendered his reputation and his marriage to God and said, Lord, use this relationship for your glory. Mary surrendered her body to God and said, use my body for your glory. 
They both surrendered their relationship to God in that they remained pure until after Jesus was born. And now in giving us the details here, it tells us in addition to that that they gave whatever else they could to God as well. Though they didn't have much, they brought what offering they could. What a great example. So we see here the obedience of Joseph and Mary, but not only that, we see also the anticipation of Simeon. In walks Simeon, this new character to our, our, our story, to this historical account right now. In verse 25, now there was a, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And we'll get to the second part here in just a moment. But Simeon here lived in anticipation of God working. We see the anticipation of, of Simeon here in these verses. He, Simeon was, first of all, a man of experience, verse 25 tells us. He, he had character. He was righteous. He was devout. Simeon gets called righteous and devout as an old man. By the way, if you don't know this, your character accrues over time. Who you really are is revealed over the course of your life. That's the reality of it. And what was said about Simeon was that he was righteous and that he was devout. It had been revealed over time by the life that he lived. And it's worth noting the two different words and how they differ in their focus. To be righteous meant that Simeon made choices that pleased God. He made choices in accordance with the will of God. The choices that he made in life showed the values of God and the values of his kingdom. But to be devout meant that Simeon had a deep reverence for God. This was not just mere obligation. This was not legalism. He loved God, was devoted to God, and he surrendered his life and obeyed God because he saw God as worthy of his surrender. So, Simeon, this man of experience, had character. He was righteous and devout. He had faith. Where do you see that? You see it in the fact that he's living near the temple. And the fact that the scriptures tell us here that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's in Jerusalem, living near the temple, thinking about God constantly, working for God constantly. And he's waiting for the redemption, the consolation of Israel. Now that phrase, consolation of Israel, has its roots in the Old Testament. It actually comes from a series of chapters found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 44 to, or excuse me, Isaiah 40 to, to Isaiah 66. This section of scripture, which begins with uh, Yahweh announcing comfort to his people is, is where we get this idea of consolation. Comfort, consolation, same word or idea from the Old Testament. And, and here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses one through five, and then again in, in nine through 11. He says, comfort my people, Isaiah the prophet speaking on behalf of God. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will comfort them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Here's the idea. When the the saints in Israel heard this prophecy from Isaiah, they said there's coming a season when God will love us and not discipline us. Where we will no longer be under his, his judgment, under his discipline, but his love will be experienced not in just protection and discipline, but in gentleness and care. He will love us like a shepherd cares for lambs and picks them up and carries them. He's, gonna, he's, he's going to comfort his people. Now this time of restoration was expected to be accomplished through Yahweh's anointed representative, the Messiah. Mashiach in the Hebrew means anointed. Christos or Christ in the Greek means anointed. It was going to come through the one whom God anointed for that task. And, and Simeon is living for that He's hoping for the consolation of Israel. He wants to see God comfort his people and care for them like a shepherd does for his sheep. And we're also told in the text that he was full of the Holy Spirit. This means that this man was empowered by and used by God. The idea of the Holy Spirit being upon Simeon is is similar to the Old Testament moments in Scripture where we see the Holy Spirit come upon people in the Old Testament to empower them for a task. He lived empowered by God. It also means that probably Simeon was of that class of people who were often referred to as prophets. And indeed, he does prophesy over Jesus as he speaks blessing in the coming verses. But he was full of the Holy Spirit. Here's the idea. I I love this this, this picture of, of being full of the Holy Spirit. It's like a glass that is sort of brimming over, that the Holy Spirit is upon him in such a way that, that God is so much in him that God is spilling out. That's kind of the idea. And that's what we see in Simeon. But he was also a man of expectations. Verses 26 and 27 tell us. He expected God to speak. He put himself in a position not just to hear or not just to speak to God, but also to hear from God. Now, this is a fascinating subject for us to consider as it relates to this category of our discipleship of of having a heart that is willingly submitted to God. You see, Simeon was listening and responsive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in his life. Did you see that in verse 26? And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the anointed one. How did he get this information? From listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's how he got this information. And he lived expecting that what God had spoken to him was true. Excuse me. You see, this may sound a a little bit like a a, a nice little religious truth to to talk about the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But as you and I both know, much harm has been done by people who have said, I've heard the voice of God. A lot of difficult things have happened in history. From people who have said, no, I I, I know what God spoke to me, and and they've gone off and done terrible things. 
The flip side of that, again, to the other extreme, is that a lot of sorrows in this world have happened because people did not listen to the voice of God, <laughs> right? Like God was telling them, that's wrong, don't do that, and they went and did it anyway. So that also is, is true. So here's, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. We, we have to be discerning to know how to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit so that we don't fall into error on the one hand and we don't ignore the leading, the conviction, the correction, the direction of the Holy Spirit on the other hand. So how do we grow in discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you four ways that the Holy Spirit has proven to speak to us in the scriptures. And then we're, we're going to reverse engineer that a little to hopefully sharpen our senses some and give us a better sense of like how practically does the Holy Spirit speak in our lives? Okay, so here's some of the things that we know. First of all, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. The word of God, this is important, I, I can't stress this enough, the word of God is 100% Holy Spirit inspired and directed. If you want to know what the voice of the Holy Spirit is like, all you have to do is open this book right here and begin reading. That is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so, whenever something comes in contrast to what the Word of God says, we can immediately say, no, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak like that because he's given me his Word, and what you're saying or what I think I'm hearing is contrary to what he has already said. That's, that's the first part. He speaks through his Word. He speaks also through wisdom. The Holy Spirit's voice works in our lives through wisdom. In Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, we're told that a renewed mind, by hearing the word of God, produces in us wise and informed and obedient actions, proving what is the will of God. Okay? And in the Old Testament... Often in poetic language, wisdom is personified, like in the Proverbs, where it's personified as a woman, as, as wisdom cries out in the streets, in, inviting, beckoning. She speaks, she beckons, she invites God's people to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit leading. So wisdom is this... this this idea that through the renewal of our mind, the word of God works its way into our lives and there's a logical framework by which we have power to make wise, God-glorifying, God-honoring decisions. Now some people, especially in, in youthful experiences uh, with God, in the desire to grow in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, sort of live in this, this like constant um, a perpetual tormented state of, of mind, which is how do I know what the will of God is? And so it's like, you know, when you get up in the morning, you're like, do I, should I put on my left sock right first? Should I do that first, Lord? Or should I do the, the, the right sock first? Uh, Holy Spirit, I need discernment. And you're just like stuck with no socks for the rest of the day because you haven't heard a word from the Lord. Now, that's obviously sort of extreme, but here's the idea. You can get paralyzed into thinking that you need a word from the Lord for everything that you have to do. No. Listen. God has given you a brain for a reason. You were made in his image to be able to take the wisdom of God, apply it to your life, and with Holy Spirit trust... And Holy Spirit leading through the scriptures to make wise choices with a heart and a desire to honor God and his kingdom. So the Holy Spirit works in wisdom. In wisdom. But the Holy Spirit also works in whisper. Now, 
This is a sort of special revelation. This is the, the, the personal voice of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Now, I remember when I was uh, uh, about 18 years old, I had a, a, a real falling out with my parents. I was a drug addict at the time, and you know they were having Bible studies in the living room, and I remember they had some of their religious friends over. They were talking about Jesus and talking about the scriptures, and I was in my bedroom, which was right next to the living room. It was super annoying to me. It was just aggravating me because I was like, man, man, I don't get this whole God thing. Like, I, I've wanted to hear his voice. I've wanted to know him, and, and, and I've prayed, and I've asked God to do things, and then I get nothing. I get diddly, right? And so I come out into the room, and I'm huffy, and I'm a teenager, and I know everything. And I'm like, hey, you know, I, I don't know if I buy into all this stuff that you guys are talking about. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I, I've never seen a burning bush. I've asked God to to reveal himself to me, but he's never poked his head through the clouds and been like, hey, Jeremy, what's going on? So what's the deal here? How do you hear the voice of God? And I remember my mom, she just had a Holy Spirit answer. She said, you know, Jeremy, when you invite God to come and live in your life, where do you expect his voice to come from? And I was like, ooh, never thought of that. (laughs) I guess it's supposed to come from the inside. From the presence of the spirit that dwells in us. Okay, so now here's the thing. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in us. Right? Like, how do we discern the difference between the voice of God and and the whisper of the Holy Spirit. You remember the, the, the story of Elijah in the mouth in the Old Testament, the mouth of the cave in the Old Testament? How the, you know, God was not in the fire and he was not in the storm, but a still, small voice. How do we, how do we discern that? Well, there's only a few things that I could tell you in relation to that. The whisper of the Holy Spirit becomes more familiar the more we give time to listen. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, if you, if any one of you right now got on the phone and called my mom and you just started talking, you never introduced yourself. You'd be like, hey, uh, how's it going? You know, blah, 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 blah. My mom would be like, who is this? But if I call her, I don't have to introduce myself. I can be like, hey, How's it going? It's like, hey, Jeremy, it's good to hear from you. How are you doing, right? She knows my voice through familiarity. So too, there is this sort of growing in our ability to hear the voice of God over time. And that happens through testing. It's like, okay, I think that the Lord told me this. I I had that thought, and it doesn't seem natural to me. It's contrary to my flesh and what it desires, but... But I think I heard God say something. And so you begin to act in obedience. And, and then God will meet you in that. You're like, that was the Lord. He did tell me to do that. Okay. I can remember what his voice sounded like. How it was different from my internal unctions. It was contrary to what my flesh desires. So if I hear a voice telling me, rob a bank. Okay, I have the word of God that tells me the Holy Spirit doesn't speak like that. But also, I have random weird stuff go on in my brain all the time. I don't know if you've ever been that guy, but you walk in, maybe you've seen too many movies, you walk into a bank and you think, what would it take to knock this place over? <laughs> it's probably just me. But, but here's the deal. Reign of stuff goes on in, in our heads all the time. And so we have to question those things and run it through a grid. Is it consistent with what God has seen in the scriptures? Is it contrary to my flesh? Is it something I don't naturally desire? Then maybe there's a, an external voice now that is speaking into my heart and into my life that is different than my own internal voice and the things that normally go on there. And the more we practice, the more we become familiar with the voice of God. It's not 100%. It has risks. 
but it's a part of life and faith. And the third way that God speaks is often through wonders. He often speaks through wonders. These are special moments where God speaks through prophets, through visions, through dreams, words of knowledge, signs, miracles. And guys, listen, we're from a more conservative tradition, but we've got to deal with this. It's in the scriptures, okay? We know from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit speaks through prophets. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, tells the Thessalonian church and us as well, despise not prophecies. We should be listening for the voice of God through his people. We know from Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit speaks through visions. We see it again also in uh, Acts chapter 10. We know that the Holy Spirit speaks through visions. We know also that the Holy Spirit speaks through dreams. Job chapter 33 verses 14 to 15 tells us that. And the Holy Spirit speaks through signs and wonders. That's all throughout in the entirety of the New Testament where God does miracles. He heals people. He does miraculous things. And the Holy Spirit does speak in those ways as well. Now, caveat. Satan also performs lying signs and wonders. That also is true. So once again, we find ourselves in a position to have to be discerning. To go, is that consistent with the heart and character of God? Does it match up with what I see in Scripture? Is there confirmation of, by the Holy Spirit in my own heart that God is at work right now? Or do I feel an uncomfortableness right now that is happening by the Holy Spirit where God is helping me to discern? Matter of fact, we are told in 1 John, or uh, yeah, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're told to test it, not just accept it, carte blanche. We're to be discerning as God's people. So here's the thing. Simeon heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, you're not going to die till you see my kingdom come, till you see my Messiah. Simeon heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. He believed what God said. And he lived in the truth of that reality. He lived expecting, anticipating that before he died, God's will would be done. Now, he expected God to do what he said. He believed God to be faithful and true. He was counting on the character of God. And because God took, or because Simeon took God at his word, he expected God to perform his promise to him. And he expected to see the Messiah before death. He clung to the promise that God had given him. And he expected God to lead and to meet him and to let him know when he would encounter the Messiah. And so he came in the temple. Verse 26 and 27 tells us he came in the temple. Verse 27, the first part. In the spirit. Okay, just real quick. I just want to pause this. This is not in my notes, but a, a, a freebie. Something that's on my mind, okay? Check this out. How would it change things if you came into this place expecting God to meet you? Because you believed that God is present here among his people. That the Holy Spirit, by nature of the fact that we are talking about the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit is right now speaking to his people. How would that change our perception to come in here week after week expecting God is here and he wants to comfort and console and meet his people? Oh man, what a change it makes when we come with anticipation of the will of God being done in our lives. How would it change your devotions? If you came to your devotions in the Spirit, he said, okay, Lord, you're here. You're with me right now. I'm opening the scriptures. 
Lord, I know that you want to speak through your word. You want to renew my mind. You want to shape my thinking. You want to give me wisdom. God, do your work in me right now. What if you expected God to show up in that conversation with a friend? In that moment, with those people that you love, what if you expected God to show up? Well, Simeon does. He expects God to lead him. He expects God to reveal to him when he encounters the Messiah. And that is exactly what happens. And then in verse 28, he took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So Jesus' parents are astonished here. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon here is is also a man of exclamations. He begins blessing God. And and, and in his blessing to God, he, he he says a few things that I want you to take note of. First of all, he says, my life is complete to see. Now you're, remember he says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. My life is now complete because in Jesus, I see your words being fulfilled. This has all happened according to your word. I see your will being done. My eyes have seen him, the anointed one. Your will is being accomplished. You promised consolation for your people, and he's here. The anointed one, he's here with us right now. My eyes have seen it. Consolation and comfort in a person, in a baby, in Jesus. I see your will being done. My life is complete to see your words fulfilled, your will being done, your salvation in a person. Notice, what he says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, the name of Jesus. Isn't that great? He looks at the baby Yeshua, baby Jesus. He goes, mine eyes have seen your salvation right here. Not in what you did, but in who you sent Not in our ability to repent, but in the one who will deliver us. Oh, man. Incredible. The person of salvation is wrapped in a blanket and sitting in the arms of Simeon right now. It's incredible. I've seen your salvation. My life is complete to see your word fulfilled your will being done, your salvation in a person, and your salvation to the whole world. He says this is for all people. It's a light for the Gentiles. He has a bigger perspective than just Israel. He goes, this is for everybody. This is for the whole world. This is consolation, not just for Israel. It's for every person. And then he says, and you've kept your promises to Israel. My, my life is complete to see your promises to Israel kept. He blesses God and he sees Jesus and he goes, oh, this is it. This is the moment you were telling me about. I knew it would come. I just didn't know today would be the day. Here I am. I'm in the temple and and here he is. Salvation wrapped in a blanket for everyone. Your promises to your people are kept and I can die in peace, he says. Then he says, he goes on, excuse me, to bless Joseph and Mary. And he says three things that they need to know. He says, your son will create the crisis of choice 
the crisis of choice. In verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Here's what's going to happen. Your son is going to be the dividing line right now. His presence here is either you want God's will or you don't want God's will. You want God's kingdom or you don't want God's kingdom. He is the dividing line for what people actually want. He's a sign that's opposed. The rise and fall of many will happen solely on the basis of this little baby right now. Your son will create the crisis of choice, the rise and fall of many. He's going to create the crisis of pain. In verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, probably an allusion to the fact that Mary's heart would be broken in seeing her son crucified. Probably an allusion to the fact that her whole life was spent as an outcast because of the circumstances of his birth and because during his ministry he was hated by so many prominent Jewish leaders. Having Jesus in her life meant a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, and it ended with the equivalent of a sword being pierced through her. Your son will create the crisis of choice, the crisis of pain, and the crisis of exposure. The last thing he says to them is that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed through the presence of Jesus. What's actually happening in the heart is going to be revealed by the presence of your son in the world. Do you want God? Do you want his will? What will you do with the one he sent? That's the crisis. And it will expose what our truest desires are underneath. And lastly, we get to the proclamation of Anna. The proclamation of Anna in verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. That's a very polite, biblical way to say that she was elderly. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She gets married, is married for seven years, becomes a widow, lives as a widow the rest of her life. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the first thing we get in Anna here is her pedigree of faithfulness. We see that she's a prophetess. We see that she has a holy heritage. She's of the tribe of Asher, a daughter of Phanuel. We see that she is a disciplined worshiper. Regularly, she is fasting, and regularly, she is praying. The Bible says here in verse 37, night and day, she did these things totally devoted to the Lord. She's like, okay, I have one husband now as a widow. God is my husband. I'll pour all my love out at his feet. Oh, it's incredible. The beauty of this woman's heart and her character. The pedigree of faithfulness in her life. And then we see not only Anna's pedigree of faithfulness, but her confirmation of Simeon's blessing. By her coming up and seeing Jesus and then beginning to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of of Jerusalem, you have both a man and a woman rejoicing in the presence of the Messiah. Remember, Remember how things got broke in the world to begin with, a man and a woman rejecting the rule of God? Now a man and a woman rejoicing at the will of God being done. Here they are pronouncing blessing. It's incredible. And her presence there as a female prophetess 
proves that what Simeon had just said was not just the ramblings of an old man. There's confirmation in that there are two prophets now present and speaking. It's not just a random old guy who made some stuff up in the, the, the passion of the moment. No. Two prophets have heard from the Lord in the presence of Jesus and begun to prophesy over him and his role in the world in God's redemption and the consolation of Israel. And so, her confirmation proved that this was indeed from the Lord. And then notice what she goes on to do. The, mis- the blessing of Simeon, the message of the Messiah is immediately worth sharing. She goes around. Not only does she start praising God, but she goes around to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She just, just immediately, I saw him. The Messiah, he's here. I saw him. And, and, and Simeon was there too. And he saw him. And Simeon's going to die soon. Because God told him that would happen. But man, it's happening. Redemption has come. I've been waiting for this moment, haven't you? Haven't you been waiting for this? She goes around and begins immediately proclaiming all of these things. So as we wrap up this this three-part series right now on willing submission to God, there's a few things that I think are worth our consideration. Remember in Zechariah, we learn that submission or surrender to the will of God is not always easy or pleasant, but it is right. And in Mary, we learn that there can be joy in surrender as we discover that, through, that though God doesn't need us, he wants to use us. Mary was not necessary for God to redeem the world. He could have chosen anyone else. But by her willingness to submit, surrender, to say, be it done to me according to your will, I'm your humble servant. She got to participate in God's plan of redemption in a miraculous way. So in Mary, we learn that we, it can be a joy to surrender as we discover that though God doesn't need us, he can use us for his kingdom purposes. And in Simeon, we learned, and Anna, we learn that we can live with anticipation of God's will being done in our lives. And so as we start this new year, <clears throat> may we be a people who live and die with lives of surrender. Where we go, Lord, I want your will to be done and not my own. Like the saints of old, may we li- live on our knees, surrender to God, our necks stuck out saying, do with me whatever you will. I want your will done in my life. You see, God is telling a story of redemption through each of us, through you, through me. A friend of mine, he, she sent a, uh, a poem to our group chat this last week, and I love the way that she put it. I'm just going to read this poem to you. It's called The Author's Ink, and this is what she says. <clears throat> she says, love the quill, his own life, the ink poured out for us. He cuts through in scrolling script the white space of our blank pages penned in priceless blood, etching out a place for himself among the fibers of our paper heart. Crimson seeps into the deep, each parched and thirsty being written upon by ink-stained hands in an alphabet of scarlet grace. Our life, a book. Our pages, a canvas. Made to drink in the author's ink. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, how great this next year could be. If we all grew as disciples of Jesus in our willingness to submit and surrender our lives to God in every area. Perhaps the biggest way to make 2024 even better is to surrender more of our lives to the will of God, to foster lives of willing submission to God as disciples of Jesus.
Amen. Would you pray with me as the band comes up to close us in worship? Father, we're so grateful for your word, and, and we're grateful to be challenged by it, to be brought to a place where we are forced to wrestle with whether or not we want your will in our lives, where we are brought to the crisis of a decision through the presence of your Son and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I just pray that through your word that you would start a fire in our hearts that would, that would begin to burn brighter and brighter and take over. That there would be a desire to be led by your spirit, obedient to your word, directed by your voice. God, may we come into this sanctuary and may we go out of it and into the rest of the world with an anticipation that you want to do your will in and through us. Lord, give us hearts they are not just reluctantly submitting and surrendering to God, although that's, that's acceptable as well not just joyfully responding to the the revealed will of God in in, in the moment, but, but are actually anticipating and looking forward to those opportunities where we get to participate in your plan of redemption. Oh, give us hearts, Lord, that love to see you have your way. Shape us and mold us, we pray, by the Spirit. Refine us and make us more like your Son. In the name and for the glory of Jesus.